everyone. I'm Saba Long, host of Where the Party At, your political podcast. This is our Who Runs Atlanta series, where we're giving you in-depth interviews on the folks running for your city government. Today, I sat down with Sharon Gay, candidate for mayor of Atlanta. Now, you probably never heard of Sharon before this year, but she's a big-time real estate attorney. She's worked behind the scenes on major real estate projects across the city. She knows the political players, has worked in City Hall, but she's never held public office before. The big question for Sharon is, how much do voters really care about charisma? The other big question, will Atlanta's vote for a wealthy, older white woman? We'll see. Sharon, it's a pleasure to see you on the show. Thanks so much for being here today. How are you? Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm well, thank you. Good. So Sharon, today we're going to talk about who you are, why you're running for mayor, what folks should know about you. But before we get into the nitty gritty and the hard questions, uh, let's start off with a segment of our episode called That's So Atlanta. So I'm just going to ask you some Atlanta related questions and you just will free flow it. Okay. Okay. Um, and on this first question, you cannot say the first thing that comes to mind, which will be your neighborhood. All right. So what is your favorite Atlanta neighborhood? Not Enman Park. <laughs> uh, I guess I would say Midtown because it has a little bit of everything. It's our most dense neighborhood in the whole city. I've, I've heard it's the most dense district in the whole Southeast. I don't know if that's true, but it sounds interesting to say so. It sounds right. Yeah. And it has a great mix of residential, commercial. It's got hotels and offices, but yet it's human scale. It's walkable. It's, 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 I think, overall the most walkable part of town we have, which appeals to me. You've got basically three MARTA stations, which is, so there's good connectivity, uh, lots of energy, uh, you know, lots of restaurants and street level things you can do and open air spaces and outdoor spaces. And then, of course, if you go to the full northern end, you've got Piedmont Park and, and a wide range of ages of people who live and work there. And so it's our most urban and has just a little bit of everything, restaurants, clubs, offices, shops, everything. Got it. So you're a high powered attorney. Where do you go in the city to just unwind? Like that's your Atlanta spot. And we won't tell tell folks when you're there. <laughs> right. but And don't tell everybody else what, what I picked. <laughs> well, I'm fortunate to live a block from the Freedom Park and the Freedom Park Trail and three blocks from the Beltline. So that's the easiest thing for me to do is just go walk on the Beltline somewhere or bike. But it's got, you know, it's so crowded on the weekends. It's hard yeah, it's to bike. it's a little dangerous. Uh, yeah. The... Um, so I've got a lot of, you know, good park and green space near me. I also really love the botanical garden and it's just, even if you're there for just a little while, even if you go there for some meeting or event, it just, it's peaceful and interesting and peaceful yeah. all at the same time. My little spot at the botanical gardens, there's this little Japanese cove. And it yes. has a, a seating area and it's kind of cut off, but people don't really notice that it's there. That's my little quiet spot. Yeah, that's a, that's a good spot. I, if we had an ocean, that would be where I would go. <laughs> We're a little short on oceans. Hey, as mayor, maybe you can make that happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, if, if we don't do something about global warming, the ocean may come to us. Right, there you go. So, you know, Atlanta's a big music town. Uh, so imagine... Outcast Andre 3000, a big boy, call you up as mayor and say, hey, mayor, we want to have dinner with you. Where do you take them? 
Oh my. Um, well, see, I, I love our restaurants. I'd probably have to take them five different places just because I like, so, there's so many restaurants that, that, that we have that I like. Um, I'd probably take them to Soto Soto, either to the, the patio outside and back or the little private dining room at, on the top so that we could talk about anything we wanted and not get interrupted. Uh, but Ricardo Ulio, who started that restaurant, you know, one of the first restaurants in my neighborhood, a little over 21 years ago, and consistently turns out interesting, great food in a really wonderful atmosphere. Got it. Um, I imagine you're someone who pays attention to the arts. You know, think about over the past, you know, five years or so, who have you been really uh, surprised by, interested in, in the Atlanta art space? Mm. Gosh, we have so much. I I have a soft spot for a lot of our theaters. You know, we have the traditional of the Alliance, but then we've got um, everything from True Colors to Horizon uh, to Seven Stages, and they do they all do something interesting. You know, every year one of them at least does some really interesting play, something they hadn't thought about, hadn't seen before, didn't know much about. Um, or they'll do it in an interesting way. And, you know, because we haven't been much of anywhere in the last year and a half, no one performance immediately comes to mind. But I would I would put those, that richness and, and texture of our theater groups and theater community near the top. Thank you. All right. So that's the end of our segment. Now we'll go into the easy to hard questions. Mm. Um Sharon, you were someone who's been involved in Atlanta politics for a long time and behind the scenes. Right. And so when you decided to run for office, insiders knew who you were, but the general public is still trying to understand who is Sharon Gay. So give us a sense of your life story. You know, who are you? Where did you grow up? How, how did you come to Atlanta? That type of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely right that, um, you know, if, and if you're trying to get known for the first time, I would not recommend doing it during a global pandemic. It's probably not the wisest choice. Uh, a little hard to get out and meet as many people as I would like. Uh, my, I come from an, an Atlanta mother and a Georgia Tech dad. Uh, my mother grew up in Atlanta, grew up in Garden Hills. My grandparents lived there for 55 years. Uh, so I, as a kid, went to the Garden Hills pool a lot. I have memories of that. And she met my father when he was at Georgia Tech. And they got married and moved to where my father's family businesses were in a little town in northeast Alabama near Huntsville, sort of 40 miles from everywhere, uh, which is where I grew up uh, in a family that, that valued sort of civic service. You know, everybody in my family was very involved in volunteer work and whether it was our church or civic organizations or charities. And so I grew up with that notion that one should give back to your community. Uh, when, you know, sort of the dark side of where I grew up is that it was Alabama. And when I was little, George Wallace was the, was the governor, and I was too young to really understand how bad things were and, and you know, what had happened on the Edmund Pettus Bridge or, you know, when Dr. King's writing his letter from the Birmingham jail, I'm in kindergarten. But as I got older and became aware of what had happened in Alabama, I, you know, resolved I wanted to do something about it. I did. I, and that's really what got me interested in public policy in general and the law in particular, because I saw how the law got used to change our society. 
you know, everything from school desegregation to, uh, you know, desegregating public places and then really beginning to advance voting rights. And so that's what got me interested in going to law school and getting involved in public policy. So I went to Vanderbilt to undergraduate school, came to Emory, came to Atlanta to go to Emory to law school and really thought I would go to D.C., but that's where, you know, that's where real politics happened and real policy got made. But I fell in love with Atlanta. I, you know, Maynard Jackson was finishing up his second term when I started law school and Andy Young was elected by the time I had graduated. And the idea that we had these dynamic, progressive, new South mayors really grabbed my attention. And the fact that Atlanta's sort of business and civic and, and political leadership coalesced around the idea of moving, moving us forward rather than back becoming the capital of the New South, becoming a 20 and ultimately 21st century city, not being mired in the past of myths and lies and... And, and uh, racism. And racism, yes. And uh, that really got my attention and, and ultimately my passion. So I decided I would stay in Atlanta and be involved in more in state and local politics. Uh, took me a little while to figure out how to do that, not having come from a political family. Uh, I worked. I clerked for Judge Horace Ward, uh, who sadly died a few years ago. But he was, uh, you know, the first black judge appointed to the federal bench in the Deep South. He had been involved as a lawyer in the civil rights movement in Atlanta, and of course had great dinner party stories. You know, but was there was a richness to that experience that that was enormously valuable to me as a still a fairly new Atlantan. Uh, I worked in state government, worked in the attorney general's office for a little while. Who was the attorney general at the time? Mike Bowers, but he was a Democrat at the time. <laughs> and gradually began to realize, you know, to do policy, you have to get involved with, you have to do politics. You have to, you know, get involved with elected officials, people who who are at the policymaking level as opposed to just being a lawyer. It's very difficult to take the politics out of policy. That's exactly right. And so I do politics so I can do policy. Uh, got involved and in, sort of sort of started trying to get involved in political campaigns. I think I actually applied for a job in Mayor Jackson's third term, but didn't, didn't get one. Uh, but then Bill Campbell, who was my city council member and my around-the-corner neighbor, decided to run for mayor. And so I had always thought, you know, if he runs for mayor, I'll get involved. And he did, and I did. And so I was very involved in the campaign and then came to work as deputy chief of staff. So that was a really, you know, exciting time to be in local government. It was an honor for me to be able to work at City Hall. Uh, we got to, What was Bill like as mayor? Well, you know, I had a great experience working with Bill. He's incredibly smart, uh, incredibly quick mind, very passionate about the things he cares about, was, you know, laser focused on getting the city ready for the Olympics doing all the things that needed to be done. You know, there's a lot of drama around all of that. There were a lot of different players involved, a lot of different egos involved. And of course, the city government, of course, didn't put on the Olympics, a separate entity or put on the Olympics, but we had to get the city physically ready. And he didn't shy from the big tasks. Uh, then at the same time, we were in a situation where the Atlanta Housing Authority was officially ranked as the worst housing authority in the country. And we're starting to look at what was then Techwood Homes right next to where the Olympic Village was going to be. And, you know, how do we make that part of the city welcoming for the Olympics with, and still honor the, the residents? 
And so he was very bold in terms of uh, first sort of persuading Renee Glover to move from being on the board to actually running the place, something <laughs> you're about to do in a different context, and then really pursuing a new federal grant program that enabled us to redevelop public housing in a more comprehensive way, have it be mixed income, have it be mixed use, not just tear down one unit and put up the same old thing, but really build communities and bring in social services and after-school programs and connect to schools and create YMCAs and grocery stores and the things that that neighborhoods need to be healthy. And I think that's a great legacy of his work. Uh, we also, right after the Olympics, started, this sounds so quaint now, but we were afraid nobody else, nobody would ever come back. You know, okay, we've made Atlanta, put us on the international stage. What if nobody come here, comes here? What if nobody moves here? What if nobody invests here? What do we do? And so the planning department, Mike Dobbins was the commissioner by this point, we started working on how do we get the city ready to become a more modern city. So did a lot of changes to the zoning code, created, put some incentive programs in place to, to try to make downtown a more of a live, work, play environment instead of just office buildings that people vacate by six o'clock at night. That's really when some that of the plan- still is a challenge. Well, it is. I mean, I think something like 10,000 people live in downtown right now. And I used to live downtown. Yeah, and the only place you could really go grab a drink or something to eat was a hotel bar. Right, right. Yeah, we still don't quite have enough just neighborhood density right. to support a lot of that. Uh, but it's a lot better than it was. So speaking yeah. of neighborhood density, there's this saying going around social media, uh, Atlanta, we full. In other words, don't come here. Uh, what do you say to that? I, I know, I understand the tension of needing to attract more residents to ensure the city's viability. But how do you do that in the way that mm -hmm. the folks who live here don't right. feel like they're displaced or that their concerns are not being heard? Right. It's it's a huge challenge, but it's also a huge opportunity. I mean, I, the first thing I would say is people are coming here anyway. We're, for all the reasons that the people who are here came. Uh, we're interesting, we're exciting, we're a fun place to live. We're still a relatively affordable place to live. We have a lot of interesting neighborhoods. We have an interesting, vibrant culture. We have a booming, fairly well-balanced economy. We're creating a lot of the jobs of the future. We have these great colleges and universities that turn out a diverse, well-educated workforce that's probably unequal to any in the, the country. So people are coming here. The question is, how do we plan for it so that we that it, we can grow in a sustainable, equitable fashion? And that's part of what has motivated me to run for mayor. Because what I've done, you know, fast forward to after City Hall and um, what I've done in my private law practice for about a little over 20 years, the public policy practice is primarily focused around community development and economic development. Um, you know, help clean up brownfields, clean up. What's a brownfield just for folks okay, who yes, may be familiar? Yes. A really, really bad environmental problem. Uh, Atlantic Station. Atlantic Station example. being a great example. It was 138 acres that had been a steel mill and had all this toxic residue of the making of steel and called slag, and it was just deposited all over the, the property. And there were some other things that were even scarier. Uh, but it had been sitting there for decades because nobody could figure out what to do with it. And so what I, working with my colleagues at the firm and the developer in the city and the state and the federal government, is came up with a series of different types of, of 
public financing and public incentives that enabled us to clean up that 138 acres, put in the infrastructure. You know, there wasn't a usable street or a sidewalk, or I mean, it's hard to imagine now, but there was nothing there except a building. And so we built sidewalks, we built sewers, we built streets, we built the parking deck, we built everything that you need to actually build a city. And now it's kind of a town. And, right. and that's, that's the first big project like that I've worked on, but I've since done everything from Camp Creek Marketplace to Pont City Market to uh, Madison Yards was a more recent one I worked on, a lot of things up and down the Beltline. And what I had to do in that, doing that kind of work, you know, I don't think up these projects. I just help execute. The, I'm not the visionary. I'm the, You're the, the lawyer they call when they want to do it. That, that's right. That's right. I, I, don't take, I don't want to pretend for a second that I'm the, the one who, who thought up these great projects, but I help them get them done by bringing together government, business, neighborhoods, uh, sometimes other civic and community groups to figure out how to, to solve whatever the problems are, fix whatever the problems are, and create new places that people can live and work and play uh, in a way that adds to the fabric of the city uh, in a positive way. And to do that, I have to be able to work with all sorts of different kinds of groups. And to me, what we need right now is that kind of leadership times 10, because we do have this great civic infrastructure. We do have great business and civic leaders and neighborhood leaders and faith leaders and great colleges and universities and philanthropies. But what we need is to be able to pull all those things together to address in a faster way the kinds of things you were talking about. Uh, and also related to that is the, the neighborhoods where they haven't had any investment. There, you know, we, we can, we can, you could call us a tale of two cities because there are these, Definitely. these, you know, as we were talking about Midtown and Atlantic Station and, and places where there's yeah. vibrance and excitement. still a city where a child born in poverty has a, only a 4% chance right. of getting out of poverty. Right. Um, so just to kind of double down on the housing. So you have worked with developers, you've worked with neighborhoods, you've worked with the city. How do you get developers to actually build affordable housing and not everything that's built in the city is luxury, luxury right. apartments, luxury condos. Right. right. Well, the and I and I and I will just say also I have worked on the affordable housing side for a number of years. I've you know chaired the board of Atlanta Neighborhood Development Partnership. I co-chaired a task force that the Urban Land Institute put together to figure out what it is we needed. You know what what are our gaps really, and how do you get there? And so I've been working on it on the policy side and on the sort of delivery side for for a long time. The this is going to sound surprising answer to your question, but we actually need more of all types of housing. And this could get really, you know, economics 101 really quickly. But part of our challenge is we don't really have enough healthy, safe places for people to live. We have a lot of vacant housing. We have, and a lot of that is sort of affordable, but it's not in good shape and it's not near good jobs. It's not places where people want to live. And so it's not near amenities like right, public transit. Right. It's not near good schools right. or transit or jobs or, or whatever. So we sort of have a, a mismatch here. So in order to accommodate both the people who are here and the people who are coming, we do need to build more housing and build it faster than we've been building it. So and really how do you do it? all price points and types of, of housing. There are, you know, we've got a pretty robust nonprofit sector right now, our community development corporations and um, nonprofits like ANDP that I worked with, who can provide, you know, 
20, 25% of what we need in terms of affordable housing. Uh, they, you know, they just work on a different scale because they are not-for-profit or community development corporations. So they have a different financial model and they can make it, make it work. The, the tools, and so the city needs to be an active partner with everybody. What does that look in the, like? In the affordable so housing space. In the Sharon Gafer mayor administration, what would that look like? Well, the first thing I would do is wake up the sleeping giant of Atlanta Housing Authority. And we've not built a new unit in about 12 years, which is just astounding to me. We Atlanta Housing Authority has about 400 acres of land that could be used for deeply affordable housing. That's really what housing authorities have the, the tools and the resources to do. And Why do so, you think that hasn't happened? Leadership. I just think there was a lack of attention. To, leaders took their eyes off the ball. There may have been other agendas. I, you know, we'll never know. But certainly that great push we had uh, during the Campbell and Franklin eras just paused, stalled. And so that really is a huge piece that the, the city can put on the table. The, you know, we could probably get 20,000 units of deeply affordable housing just on that property alone. The city also owns a lot of property. You know, the school system owns a lot of property that's now surplus. So probably not all of it is suitable, but we have, we certainly ought to do, be very intentional about figuring out what is suitable. Then we have a lot of vacant and underutilized land throughout the city and our along our corridors and our thoroughfares. Again, some of it's in areas that have been neglected. So what I really want to focus on is what I'm calling healthy neighborhoods, really focus on the areas that are in the most need, the neighborhoods that have been you know, left behind for too long, do place-based planning, you know, help bring in people who can help the neighborhoods themselves figure out what they need. Because the city should be investing in those neighborhoods. Then you make them more attractive. Then people do want to live there. The, the vacant housing gets renovated. People come in and build new housing. And so sometimes the way, you know, if I live in a neighborhood where the, let's just make up numbers here, where the median price of a home is $150,000, and then somebody builds $500,000 townhomes, the immediate fear is, oh my gosh, gentrification, we're being priced out. Well, if you build enough housing, you can accommodate new people without pricing out the old people. Old Fourth Warden is, is an example where that worked pretty well. Now, I don't think some might Well, I was going to say that. some might disagree, <laughs> but I will tell you what the data shows, what the actual data shows. And, of course, I've, you know, lived right next door and have worked a lot in Old Fourth Ward. You know, and, and Fourth Ward became more attractive because of the Beltline. The Eastside Trail was built early. Uh, some other, you know, historic Fourth Ward Park was developed. And Ponce City Market came along. So there were a lot of things that made the neighborhood more appealing and attractive. There was a lot of vacant housing. I, I don't remember the number, but there was a lot of vacant housing that got renovated and put back in circulation because the neighborhood became more attractive. And so therefore that housing became more attractive. A lot of new housing was built. Now, at different price points, certainly. Some affordable elements were built. You've got a really great community yeah, development homes corporation. homes in Old Fourth Ward that are going for a million. Yeah, which is astounding. But there's been enough new housing built and enough new both rental and for sale housing built that the but the displacement, to use the term you used, is has been fairly 
modest. It's not like everybody who lived there before had to leave. Now, some people have chosen to do so. I mean, I heard about um, someone the other day who had lived in Fourth Ward for several decades, was able to sell, you know, sold her house for more money than she could possibly imagine, bought a house in East Point, and now has a big nest egg. Now, she doesn't live in the city anymore, but that was a, a choice she was able to make. So I don't want to, I want to be careful to say it's not that everything was done perfectly, but it's an example of how you can try to moderate the impact of increased investment and rapid change by continuing to expand the amount of housing that's available and expand the parts of town that are attractive, that attract people. And so once you do that, you make make the neighborhood healthier, then the schools are healthier, the kids have a better chance in life, better chance of getting to age 18, being sort of healthy, well-educated, and on a path to success. So for someone listening who's not a homeowner, who doesn't have that equity in a property that's rapidly increasing, why why should they care about the mayor's race? What are the policies that a mayor can oversee that impacts their lives? Mm-hmm. No, great question. And, and one of the puzzles for me of so true of any election, but certainly this one, because it's the one coming up and it's the one that I'm in, is how do we get people who are not the traditional political insiders or people who always pay attention to politics, how, we, how do we get them to, to be interested, not to vote, but to be interested enough to vote? Uh, and I guess I'd say a couple of things. One, and this is part of what I found interesting about local government, is city has to deliver services to everybody every day. Even if you live in an apartment rather than owning your own home, there's still trash pickup, there's street cleaning, there's sidewalks, there's streetscapes, there's the, the, not to mention public safety and, and street lights and the, whether there is a bike lane or not in your neighborhood or whether you've got quick access. Whether there's a grocery store. Yeah, I was going to say whether you've got access to fresh food. All of those are things that the city either directly controls or can have a big impact on in terms of how we use the resources we have, how we use the incentives we have. Uh, one of the things we're missing, I think, is an economic development plan. And that, that'd be another way you get more intentional about the neighborhoods that need more resources, is use, create a citywide economic development plan and use the public incentives we have and the tools we have to give assistance to the neighborhoods that need it the most rather than just waiting passively for somebody to knock on the door and say, I'd like incentives. Creating affordable housing is is one good use of incentives, and that that's a that's another way to, to make the market deliver more housing, is provide incentives that match up with what the cost is. And so that those are all things that the city does every day that affect everybody. And then I guess another thing I would say is, you know, particularly if you're younger, you're getting started in life, you your first or second job, still paying off that student loan, perhaps. And maybe that's why you don't own a house yet, because you're the rent and the and the student loan are almost more than you could stand, is build the future you want to see. The, you know, we you and I were joking a little before we got started about the generations that have come before that perhaps have broken things or not done everything quite right. I'd love to see the newcomers, the new, new fresh out of school, the young, you know, 
people who live here are under 40, help do get involved, build the future. Like I said, build the future you want to see. Help those who are in leadership, whether it's in government or civic roles, to come but up with new ideas to build the how. city in a better way. Let's talk about how, right? So in Atlanta, we have the neighborhood planning unit process. Right. Um, I was one of the weird people who in my 20s was on on the board of <laughs> that my That was unusual to, in your 20s, yes. Right, it's very unusual. Um, most of the folks there are I'd certainly 40 and above. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to attend a city council meeting, it's in the middle of the day. Right. Who has time for that, right? right? And, and to keep track of what's happening and why you should send public comment for or against a piece of legislation. So what should the city be doing to get new voices at the table and actually engaged in what's happening in their city? Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about that because I have the same concern you do that that the you know when Mayor Jackson had this idea of the neighborhood planning units what he really wanted was literally to get citizens involved in planning their futures, planning the future of their neighborhoods, planning the future of the city and it it's still a work in progress. Now, this may surprise people who think of me as a zoning lawyer, but I'd actually like to give the neighborhood organizations and the neighborhood planning units more responsibility. Now, to do that, there would have to be more resources, but really, they've almost become regulators. Like, we, you know, take an up or down vote on this, take an up or down vote on that. And what I'd really rather see is re-engage in that idea of planning, planning your neighborhood. I mean you know, who knows better than where the most important places to put sidewalks, the, where the bike lanes ought to go, or wh- who's riding bikes, or whether that that is a good thing. I mean, just a couple of examples. Then the people who live there. And I think if we broadened the range of things we ask the neighborhood leaders to engage in, you would interest a broader range of people. Now that's going to take more resources. And it takes some responsibility on part of the neighborhood leaders too. To- and building trust. Right, right, and that's not that's not a flip the switch thing. They, um, I think, know. particularly for younger generations, where there is a significant amount of distrust, some warranted, right, that you're going to do what you want to do anyway. My voice right. doesn't matter. Right. Well, if enough of you come in, you can take over. <laughs> Don't tell that's anybody true. I said that. But uh, well, and I wonder, and I've had this conversation with a number of of MPU leaders about during COVID, all the meetings switched to virtual, of course, and they, some of them were sort of streaming on Facebook, but ultimately I think most people settled on Zoom. Sort of the, the downside of that is you don't have that natural interaction that comes from meeting in person and having those little sidebar conversations and talking, going out for a beer afterwards, but it also allowed more people to participate and see what was going on in their neighborhoods. And so probably those meetings will stay hybrid, and which may be a way to engage more people. Uh, and but I think we at the city and in this I would certainly the city council members would have to be an active part of that is to think really think hard and carefully about how to present and shape the role of the neighborhood planning process to make it be more interesting to more people. Now I also think there's great additional civic leadership in our city. The other way for people to get involved is take an issue they care about. And that's, you know, when I was a managing partner of our law firm for four years, when young lawyers would come to me and say, I just moved here from wherever, you know, how do I get involved? I would always advise this, 
pick an issue or two that you care about, something you care about, whether it's helping helping children learn to read or if it's environmental causes, whatever is interesting to you, and get involved in an organization that focuses on those issues. Not only will you meet interesting people and meet like-minded people and develop some leadership skills, but it is a way for you to make a difference and to learn more about something you care about and ultimately to make a difference. So it doesn't have to be the city government. You know, as I said earlier, we've got great civic partners, you know, engaged that way. Yeah. So the city council voted just recently on something called Cop City, um, which that's the that's how it's been termed on, on social media. <laughs> yes. um, but it we, is, we like shorthand ways to talk about right, things. It is a police, fire, and general emergency uh, response training center for the city of Atlanta. Uh, there was a lot of public opinion comments against the legislation, but it still passed city council. Mm-hmm. So what do you say to folks? Well, first of all, what what was your thoughts on the on the legislation? My understanding is there is a provision that the new mayor could come in and basically nix uh, the plan. Uh, is that something you would do? Um, and if not, what is it that people are missing in this cop city mm-hmm. conversation? Yeah, it, it so it was sort of an example of I think a lot of the things that we've not done well in recent years. I share the frustration of those who didn't think the community engagement process was useful. It, you know, the excuse is always COVID and remote working and virtual meetings and all that, but that's no excuse for not being more open and transparent and preparing the public sooner for the idea that this idea was going to be presented and then giving, finding ways to have more meaningful input and more meaningful Information sharing. Why why do you think there was this lack of interest in public engagement? Well, I (laughs) I would have to read some minds, but it does seem like just uh, once again a lack of leadership, a lack of interest and willingness. And is that lack of leadership from the the mayoral administration? Is that a lack of leadership from civic leaders? Where would that lie? It's probably a little both. And, and of course, that requires collaboration. You know, if, if nobody asks anybody to help, then they're all doing it in silos. Uh, so, so that's one thing. It just made it, you know, layering in COVID on top of it, it made it worse. But just not having, you know, it was, you take a kernel of a good idea, but then you don't really have a strategy for how you're going to get public buy-in, which takes, which is hard work. You know, roll up your sleeves, go to a lot of meetings, spend a lot of time, have a lot of arguments. And so that all got compressed into this, you know, marathon effort of calling in public comment because people don't just waste time calling in public comment. They do it when they want to be heard. And there were a lot of people who didn't feel like they were heard. So that's part's unfortunate. Now, scroll back to what the need is. And I mean, I will tell you, I remember discussions about putting a public safety training center there when I was in the mayor's office in the early 90s. So, you know, the city has owned the land for decades. It has always had some sort of prison or police or, you know, it's had some sort of public safety element to it. To it. It's been a most in recent years, of course, it's been a firing range. And so the idea of that being a place where you could create a state of the art public safety training center is not a new idea. The This proposal sort of felt like it popped out of a cake, but but the idea had been around a long time. Uh, at the same time, the the land is has unique value as green space and natural area and, and natural forest. 
And so valid concerns on the part of those who thought that's where it would way it would be and that there had been some planning in that regard, both by the public sector and the private sector. Uh, there's some watershed challenge or some important watershed elements there that need to be protected. I ultimately... But, but couldn't the city, just like what they did with Old Fourth Ward Park, figure out a way to address those watershed yeah. problems and still have well, I think that's for the public and yeah, for residents? And Yeah, I, I think that's where we're heading with this plan. And ultimately, while I concluded... That I, that I would have, you know, had I been there, I would have voted in favor of the plan, the final version of the plan for, for a couple of reasons. One, the drastically scale back the amount, the footage, you know, the footprint of what the public safety facility would be leaving a whole lot more available for green space. Two, they have what seems to be a pretty good plan for activating the green space much sooner than it otherwise would have been done because there just hadn't been any money. There was some nice ideas, but there was no money, public or private sector or non-private sector, anywhere in the foreseeable future to actually make that property accessible. Because it's not accessible now. It's fenced off. It's there are holes in the ground where buildings used to be. It's not a safe or welcoming environment. And so the plan seems to me to have a pretty good balance of the public safety training we need and activating and making the green space accessible more quickly. Now, the other thing I'll say about it is my part of my thoughts about public safety is Atlanta ought to be a leader in 21st century policing. There's no reason why we can't end up being a national model and how to create a safer city, but do modern policing, do policing that responds to the very real concerns of where we are as a city and as a country. You can't police the way we did four or five or 10 years ago. We, in this moment of racial reckoning and social justice, we have got to keep our citizens safe, but do so in a way that also is respectful. And that affects what you ask the police to do, who you recruit, how you train them, how you equip them, and how you hold them accountable, how you evaluate them, what you what you measure and what you value in, in, in their performance reviews. And I think the police, the training center gives us an opportunity to build that 21st century model by teaching modern policing techniques, but also using it as a way to engage the community with the police and how, how policing is done, how public safety is approached. And I, you know, there are national experts who I'm talking to about this because they know a whole lot more about it. But like than, Cedric. Yeah, like Cedric Alexander. Uh, but it really is a great opportunity for us. And it wouldn't have to be limited to Atlanta. You could train public safety officials all over the region. But really use it as an opportunity to embrace the community, not wall off the community. And bring in, you know, you do your your implicit bias training there. You do your, your de-escalation training and really bring in national experts, use it as a way to be a leader in how to police in the way in the place we are today. So as a result of George Floyd and the protest um, and the and Mayor Bottoms' reaction to it, uh, Atlanta experienced something called the blue flu, right? Where cops called out and said, We're not policing. Um, what do you think about that? Well, it's not just that they called in sick for a few days. It There appears, and I want to be very careful how to say this, but there does appear to be a bit of a backing off and standing down. 
And I've heard that from enough officers on the beat. I've heard it from enough people who talk to other officers. And, and Is that a reaction specifically to Mayor Bottoms? What, what is that? I think, and it's, you know, and there's a little bit of this in other cities too. It's not just here. It, and, you know, five years sociologists will tell us <laughs> exactly what happened. My best understanding is it's a combination of the reaction to excessive use of force and the reaction to these police-involved killings of private citizens that, you know, the public, again, speaking in general terms, a lot of us in the public, and I include myself in that, became less trustful and more distrustful of the way the police go about doing their jobs. And, you know, and they react to that, that, you know, and I think, you know, most police officers, you know, come from a public service bent. They want to try to do a good job. But we get into this cycle, vicious cycle of the public becomes less trustful of the police, the police become less trustful of the community. And if you don't really have just re-engage and get back at the table together and, and have really intentional and in continued engagement and interaction, that sort of builds on itself and each side pulls away farther from the other. So I, that's one element of it. I do, because I've heard it over and over again, the specific decision that the mayor made after um, Rayshard Brooks's killing murder to to fire the to fire the officers immediately was a demoralizing signal i you know i i wasn't there she was faced with a really hard choice and those officers were reinstated they were they went through the pub, the, the process and were reinstated they've been indicted but they've been reinstated but just as and a the matter the DA doesn't want to touch that case yeah, right <laughs> Yeah, sort of bless her heart as I say about that one. Uh, the it you know sort of a basic tenet of leadership and personnel management is you need people are entitled whatever due process people are entitled to you need to follow whatever procedures people are entitled to you need to follow. You've got to hold people accountable, but it has to be done fairly and consistently. And the message that I, a lot of the rank and file received is nobody has our back. And we can't trust that the procedures that have been put in place for us as a matter of law will be followed. And that just has cascading negative consequences just as a matter of leadership and management. So I think those two things together have caused, and again, I'm not making a judgment about who's right and who's wrong and who should be feeling this way and who shouldn't be feeling this way, but I think that's where we are. And so we've, restoring the morale of the department is important. Signing, signaling the, sending the signal that we support the police is important. But part of how we support is, as I said earlier, recruiting the right people, giving them the right training, being clear about expectations, We've, and I know a lot of people talk about this. We really got to get out of the business of requiring the police to do things that mental health professionals and other social service or organizations ought to do and have them focus on the things that they're best equipped and trained to do. And this, you know, this is a rebuilding on both sides. It's a rebuilding of community trust. It's a rebuilding of trust within the department and putting those two things together. That's, you know, that's another example of where you could use this new training center to have those conversations. 
So if you were to be elected mayor, you're coming into a lot of things that need to be addressed. Um, we talked just now about restoring relationships between the police and the public. Another is, unfortunately, the pandemic is still ongoing, right. uh, and it probably will be uh, in January. By then, maybe we'll be at the beta delta mu uh, <laughs> yeah, when, strain of the When we the get virus. to omega, oh, heaven help us, right? Right. Um, so give me an assessment of how you feel the current administration has handled the pandemic. Um, and if you were to come, become mayor, what would you do uh, in regards to the pandemic you know, the impact on education, the impact on mental health and uh, yeah. various ways the the pandemic has impacted our lives, great and small. Yeah. And, and you've you've listed a, whole, a host of them. I I appreciate what the mayor has done to keep us safe. And I think she was clear and communicated clearly. It, it's unfortunate that our city government, our state government were in, at loggerheads rather than being together. And I might have gone about it a little differently in order to try to build more of that collaboration. Might not have worked, but I think I might probably have gone about it a little differently. Where I think we need to do better is making our city government accessible to our citizens. You know, I ran a big office. On a Friday, we were there. And by the next Wednesday, you know, all working in the office. And by the next Wednesday, we were fully remote. I had to pivot in four days two of which were weekend. So I understand the complexity of trying to get an organization that wasn't set up to work remotely, to suddenly work remotely. But we also never closed our office. We always had a core team who worked there. And we, once the immediate stay home orders and the first spike was over, we did take in careful but intentional steps to have it be safe for people to come back to work when they wanted to. And City Hall has been closed for, for the duration yeah, of the pandemic. Yeah. I, I the, When I went to qualify, it was the first time I'd been in City Hall in like 15 months. It, you know, I felt like I was in a, an exotic foreign place. I think that was a mistake. I think, you know, other city, other governmental entities, Fulton County being one, have been open for months. And I think it is a mistake to not use, particularly when how big and open City Hall is and the atrium is, there are ways that you could have made the make the building accessible, make services accessible, make public servants accessible in a way that's still safe for everybody. And, put, you know, we one of the other big Marta things... Marta figured it out. Marta yeah, has been right, open. Right, right, Um, You know, I went over to visit some of the Fulton County Commissioners back in April, and they were open, and it all felt perfectly safe. And, you know, we know enough of... And also, you know, the initial decisions that the city made about operations were based on the sciences we knew it at the time. We learned a whole lot about the virus and how it was and was not transmitted and how we could keep people safe. And we got a vaccine, but they really haven't changed, updated the, the policies. So I think that is that is something that I would have done differently and would do differently. Uh, it also, you know, we, we are really experiencing, I think, a continued deterioration of city services. And I pandemic exacerbated it, the remote working exacerbated it, but we are at a point where you don't really expect much anymore. You know, I don't even expect potholes to be filled. I actually had to switch to my husband's car to come here because my car had a flat because I'd hit too many potholes this week. Uh, we don't, I, you know, my husband just sort of plays a game with 311 about when our 
recycling would be picked up or if, or when our yard trimmings would be picked up or if, and we've just sort of given up. We're paying for all of this stuff. And we've got to get back to the basics of just the blocking and tackling and making the city government work. We've got So is that not happening because City Hall is closed? I mean, surely the workers responsible for that can handle those tickets remotely. I'm, I'm not I'm hearing that from a lot of different yeah. people that city services are not yeah. happening the way they should. Right. Well, it's it's work remote clearly isn't working. Uh, it's too hard to get in touch with people. You know, when I pivoted an office to remote working, we had a website and every single one of us had our email and our direct dial on the website. And most of us had our cell numbers. Clients never lost a day in terms of being able to reach us. Most city employees have no idea how to reach them because they don't have that set up and they still don't have that set up. The departments appear to be on autopilot. There's not sort of central plan or coordination. And even you know, the best employee works better when there's clear lines of communication and accountability and supervision. And I mean, I've, you know, I've had Zoom calls on a Saturday afternoon with planners who are just trying to get caught up on their work. I mean, they're being diligent, but it's just a lot harder to do when you can't sit down in person in a room and go over a set of plans and figure something out. You know, the business license system collapsed for a while. People literally couldn't get a business license. Alcohol license system has collapsed. The grants management, I mean, there's so many horror stories about grants management. We probably all know about the, the HOPWA funds, the funds to for housing for people who are living with AIDS has just Where been- millions of dollars yeah, had to be returned. Yeah, yeah, because they just couldn't manage the, the simple blocking and tackling of getting the money out the door. And you, I'm, I understand that they were dealing with small nonprofits who meant well, may not have been fully organized themselves. Train them. Hire a consultant to train them. Get the money to the people who need it. I was talking to one of our CDC directors the other day, and she's been waiting for over, I think it was like three years to resolve some issues and some funding she has so that she can refinance the property to renovate it. That's just unacceptable. She's waiting three years for the city of Atlanta. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I'm, some I'm of it's technology. ask you a question. Some of it's and, leadership. And I want you to feel free to be as frank as you can. Um, do you feel that the mayor is absent? Yes. How do you win? Well, the, you know, first I will say, I actually think the race is wide open. And uh, I actually heard Mayor Franklin say that a couple of weeks ago, and I, as always, agree with her. Uh, the The fact that you have two people who, in terms of former Mayor Reed and, and Council President Moore, who've run citywide, you know, been on, in office for years, run citywide once or twice, very, very high name recognition, to have, in essence, not have moved since the summer, since early summer, I think tells you that people, are, a lot of people are looking at other choices. The fact that we still have a large number of undecideds, as you said, and different polls have different numbers of that. It sort of depends. Polls that tend to kind of oversample younger voters get a higher number of undecideds, which is not surprising, sort of back to our earlier mm -hmm. conversation. Uh, and that's sort of one of those things you try to gauge is how many younger voters are really going to turn out. The And it's always true that people tend to not pay a lot of attention until after Labor Day. I think also people are kind of exhausted with voting in Georgia. We've been voting for a year, it seems like. Right. And a lot of people still are sure, like, we got to vote again? And isn't that next year? And isn't that when the state and federal races are? And so there's still some some voter confusion about that. Uh, but we we have a polling data that we'll be releasing, I mean, maybe like in the next hour. Um, we were, 
you may have seen, I made the decision to start advertising earlier than people typically would because I'm not as well known. On I'm not TV. Run, yeah, I've not run for office before, not as well known as we you said earlier. So I made the decision to go ahead and start advertising on TV and some digital and doing some direct mail um, to you know certain sort of age demographics. And so we started polling after that was done. And my poll shows me at 12%. And where does it show the other two that you mentioned? You know, I can't remember exactly. I think it shows Council President Moore in the high 20s, maybe Mayor Reed around 20. And then, you know, we're also testing how strong those commitments are. And a lot of that commitment is I've got some reservations or I could consider another one. You also look at negatives. Um, I think one thing that many polls have shown is that Mayor Reed has very high name recognition, but a high, very high degree of people who don't view him favorably, and that doesn't give a lot of room. Uh, the other thing that I hear, so I've got to, you know, unfortunately do what candidates do, which is keep raising money to keep having the ability to reach voters. You know, I can't meet 100,000 people. I can't meet 50,000 people, and particularly in this confined, con constrained time of the pandemic, I can't meet and engage in person with voters as much as I like. So I love You've opportunities. You've also had a shorter one runaway. You've yeah, only been much. running for a couple months. Right. Um, so, you know, grateful for opportunities like this to reach people in maybe non-conventional ways, because even all the forums, just you get a minute or two to, to say something. Uh, but then what I hear over and over again anecdotally and what I see in the data is there's a real interest in something new someone new, a new approach. We've kind of been doing the same old thing, kind of bumping along. We don't really have any vision, don't really have any strategy. We're just sort of waiting and, you know, sort of treading water and a real interest in somebody who brings something different. Well, you know, the other four sort of leading candidates, if you will, combined, have a combined total of 41 years of elected office. I have zero. <laughs> and so I bring, you know, I'm not trapped by what went on before. I'm not bound by what went on before. I don't, I have the freshness to approach things differently, to do things differently, uh, to take a more inclusive, but business-like approach, analytical approach, be less involved in kind of the typical way that politicians do things. And there's real interest out there for something different. I want to be that person. Uh, but I, I think that's real. And some of that is the frustration with where we are, whether your crime is your concern or the pandemic is your concern or just the sense of dislocation, the sense of when you combine the city services and the crime situation, people sort of feel like the city's just in disorder. And that causes people to want change. Um, you are one of the candidates who has put some of your own money in the race. And by some, I mean a significant amount. Uh, is that something you anticipate doing again? Uh, and um, as you think about that answer, for folks who may feel that that's uh, not appropriate for an Atlanta mayoral candidate to do or don't understand the motivations or why would you waste or put so much of your own personal money into this, right. what would you say to them? Yeah. Well, and I, I did, you know, as you might imagine, I was long and carefully considered decision. Uh, I did it for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm not as well known. I needed, you know, I wasn't, I don't have the same, you know, broad list of people who've 
given money to me before. You know, I've never run for office and, and wasn't as well known. So I didn't have naturally, necessarily the quick fundraising breadth of from other people uh, that some of the other candidates had. Uh, I also had a short time frame, and of course, haven't run as haven't been running for long, and and haven't been able to engage as much with other with other people uh, as we might have done. I, you know, my husband and I have been made our careers in Atlanta, and and you know, came here to uh, to make our lives and make our careers, and Atlanta's been very good to us. And so we ultimately made the decision. You know, we're willing to invest some because we believe that Atlanta needs a new direction. And we're willing to invest some in my getting that message out and getting my name out. And then again, because I had wasn't as well known, I had to spend more money sooner uh, than others. You know, and I'll say also, um, you know, you've been in around politics. I, I will say, even though I have been in and around it, I was unprepared for the level of sexism and misogyny that I have encountered. And I've encountered it in the consulting side, I've encountered it on the fundraising side, I've encountered it on the just the running aspect of it. And I thought it was just something Republicans did, but <laughs> Democrats do it too. You mean it, as a candidate you're yeah, experiencing yeah, this? Yeah. And I, you know, I'm sort of past this. I thought I was kind of past that in my my life and my career. And 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 why I bring it up in this context is for this reason. Both Republican parties and the Democratic Party have for years openly recruited for as candidates men who had their own some, who could put some of their own money into races. That was considered a good thing. People who'd been successful in business, successful in their careers, had personal resources that they could and would devote. That has been embraced by both parties. But when a, a woman who's been successful in the private sector and has been financially successful runs and tries to put some of her own money and somehow that's viewed sus in a, as suspect. And uh, do that, you think it's because you're a white woman? It may be, but I, I really think it's more because I'm a woman. And I just, the, so much of what I have encountered has been something I have seen directed to women candidates. And I've talked to both democratic and women elected, you know, elected officials who are both women officials who are both Republicans and Democrats, and they yeah, both maybe experience. It's, maybe it's when you get below or get above a certain threshold. And I know Keisha put in at one point when she first ran for mayor, thirty or forty thousand of her own money in the race. But that's a lot different from yeah. six figures. Yeah, I thought it was more than that, but then I don't. Maybe I don't sixty. Know. I, I think yeah. it was. It wasn't much yeah. more than sixty. If, if and, it you know, and, and certainly. Um, Peter Raymond put a fair amount of his own money for some of the same reasons. He'd never run for office before, wasn't as well known in broader circles, um, made the decision to make the investment. Um, and there've been other examples. And, and I've, you know, I've known of people who run for city council races who in absolute numbers didn't put in as much, but ratio was, was similar. Yeah. And so the uh, city's demographics uh, have changed and continue to change from one census to the next uh, the latest one shows that, if I'm not mistaken, African Americans are just slightly now in the minority I think that's uh, right. in the city. And there's, we talk a lot about in the city, there's this legacy of black elected mayoral leadership. You have worked with or consulted with black elected mayors. Uh, what does it mean to you to be a white woman running to be mayor of Atlanta and following that legacy of black mayors? And I... I had to think long and hard about that. That really probably 
took me the longest in terms of making a decision because it has been important that the mayor of Atlanta be black. There's no question about it. As I said earlier, it was important to me. It is part of what drew me here and, and kept me here. And I understand that history. I respect that history. You know, I, I've lived here 42 years. So, you know, I know, I understand our history as a city. And, you know, Atlanta is important. We're important because of our history, not just because of our economy or our airport or uh, our music, but we're, you know, we're important because of our history. And I've, you know, studied it, learned it, lived a good bit of it, um, honor and, and respect it. And, you know, for some people, they will not be able to make that choice. I understand that. But what I what I can tell you is that I bring those, I too believe in Atlanta. I do believe in the promise of Atlanta. I believe in the beloved community. I would bring those same progressive, inclusive values. That's the core of who I am, and that's who I would bring to the office. And I, you know, I would be a mayor for all of Atlanta. Um, you know, I mentioned the polls, and there's two people, again, who seem to be the, the top contenders. Uh, if, for some reason, you're not in the top two, who would you endorse for mayor? <laughs> that's not a chit one gives away in advance. <laughs> I'll, pre I'll but, rephrase. Okay. What are some things you're looking for? Yeah. NMA or okay. candidate, should you. you not be yeah. in the top yeah. two? You know, vision, leadership, ideally in alignment with the kinds of things that I care the most about uh, and the things that are motivating me to run, a commitment to, to follow through that, and then honesty and integrity. Uh, in Atlanta, there is an ongoing conversation around something which I can't believe is really happening, but here it is. <laughs> The city of Buckhead. Buckhead splitting from Atlanta as we know it today and becoming its own city. Why do you think that's happening? And if you are elected mayor, how will you address that situation? The yeah, it 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 distresses me as it does you, as I mentioned earlier. You know, my mother grew up in Buckhead and the idea that her childhood home would not be a part of Atlanta it just is hard for me to imagine. I view it as a protest movement. You know, in my neighborhood, if we wanted to protest, we'd march to the Capitol or something. Uh, but I, I take their concerns seriously. They're very concerned about crime. They're concerned about ethics. They're concerned about lack of services. And they don't feel like they've been heard. And Couldn't a lot of Atlanta communities say that? Yes. I was going to say that ultimately, I, that is what I hear sort of all over the city. Uh, but for, you know, a combination of of sort of ideas and momentum and resources and, and some activism, that's what's been put on the table as a solution. And I think it's a terrible idea for all kinds of reasons, but what I say to people who are thinking about it is, you know, really, I mean, you deserve to be heard. You deserve to have your concerns taken seriously. What I would encourage you to focus on is electing new leadership this November and holding that new leadership accountable for the change you seek. And certainly if you elect me, I'll show up. I'll show up, I'll listen, I'll lean in, I'll do my best to, to do, have a quick turnaround of the crime issue, but also address the other things that you and other parts of the city are concerned about. Because I do hear all of the city that people don't 
feel heard. They don't feel like their government's listening to them. They don't feel like they're being responded to. The issues may differ, uh, and the approach to complaining about it may differ, uh, but it is something that I do here around the city. You know, it's it's complicated. I'm sure you know that the idea of actually getting it on a ballot and getting it approved is legally complicated, financially complicated, complicated policy-wise. There are all sorts of issues around the schools. It's not as simple as a divorce, as some, as some have called it. Um, but it I, seems like there are a number of Republicans at the state level who are willing and able to introduce the legislation and get it through and put a ballot, a referendum on the ballot in uh, November of next year. Certainly there are people who are willing to push it. And shock, shock, there are state-level politics going on when Atlanta's being used as the pawn. Gee, that's never happened before, right? While there's going to be a gubernatorial election yeah, next year, right. Senate, well, you know. That's exactly, well, and, and that's exactly what I mean, is there there appear to be some people who have seized upon it as an opportunity to engage in the age-old age uh, capital parlor game of bashing Atlanta and, and running against Atlanta as a way to run statewide. And so how do you keep the city together? You've got Buckhead that's threatening to secede. You have other neighborhoods in Atlanta who feel like their voices aren't being heard. We've talked about a child being born in poverty in the city and not having a real shot. How do you keep Atlanta together? Hey, well, I or any mayor couldn't do it alone. Uh, certainly, leadership does matter. Having a vision, having a strategy, hiring good people, bringing in leaders from all sectors of the community is critically important to turning those things around. And it's got to happen fast <laughs> because of because of where we are. But that's, you know, I, I, I believe in the promise of Atlanta. I, you know, I recently reread Dr. King's last book, Chaos or Community, Where Do We Go From Here? I believe in community. I don't think we're we're destined for chaos. I don't think we're destined to fall apart or, or fly apart or blow up apart. I think we are destined to live in community. But it, it takes effort. It takes vision. It takes faith. And I think if we elect a mayor who is willing to lead in that way and is willing, able, and capable of bringing lots of other people to the table and inspiring other people to make the commitment to come to the table. I think we can, I'm not going to say, I was about to say heal our city. I'm not sure one ever fully heals, but I think we can bring us back toward that Atlanta of promise. I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you for being with us today Thank you. for another episode of Where the Party At. Appreciate your time. Thank you. I'm Sharon Gay. I love this city. It's been my home my entire adult life. Atlanta is an important city, not just because we're the capital of an important state, not just because of our airport or our economy, but because of our history. We have led with a vision for the future, not a vision of the past. We have always been able to bring our business leaders and our civic leaders and our faith leaders and our elected officials together to build a city that is the capital of the New South and that looks to the future. But today, our city is adrift. We are, have no 
vision, we'd have no strategy, we are at risk of losing what makes us special and successful. I'm running for mayor because I have a history of doing just what has been done before. I've worked for decades in our city with business leaders and civic leaders and communities and neighborhoods to build new places, to create new things, to solve problems and embrace opportunity. And I believe those are the kinds of skills and experience that our city needs right now. Rather than sort of the same old approach to things, rather than looking toward past glories, we should look to the future with a new style of leadership, a new fresh approach, and I'm running for mayor to be that person.